G'day and welcome to a Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I'm your host for this week's a Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC. So thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the show at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Just to, as a reminder, the, the clarity of the recording isn't quite as good as when we do this in the studio, so our apologies there. But as I've said over basically the whole of the pandemic, at least we're still on the air. So we're really pleased to be able to keep the show going for you during this time. So that leads me to introducing you to our guest today, as I I probably should say. So I'd like to introduce you to Quentin Zhang, who is doing a PhD in translational medicine under the supervision of Dr. David Reed. Welcome to Grad Chat, Quentin. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here, and um, it's, it's interesting sometimes I, I get to have students on the show who I have met before, and in the various circumstances I say, come on the show, it would be great, we're going to have a good old chat, and so with Quentin, it was because Quentin participated in this year's three-minute thesis competition, which seems such a long time ago now, at the beginning of the year, and did very well, bringing, being the uh, People's Choice Award, which is awesome. And also then because of that, being a PhD student, there was other opportunities to put his video presentation forward. So we had the Matariki Network 3MT, which Queen's is a part of that network with six other universities from around the world. And of course, just recently at homecoming, uh, we were very fortunate to be allowed to do a couple of sessions on our three-minute thesis presentations. And so Quentin was in one of those sessions with presentations from this year and another session was from presentations from last year. So with that, Quentin, what do you think about the three-minute thesis and all the different opportunities that came with first of all, just even starting to participate in the first place? Well, the 3MT was a very unique experience. And I think it just really tried to allow me and give me the skills to be able to summarize my research in three minutes of time. As, as we know, three minutes is not that much time. You can barely get a coffee in a three-minute break, let alone <laughs> explain your thesis research. So it gave me an opportunity to really think about how to use my words wisely, how to summarize my research in a very succinct but also digestible way for an right. audience to capture and to understand. With basic science research, it's, sometimes it's really difficult in medical research as well, jargon and acronyms and the whole nine yards. <laughs> but for 3MT, you're, you're presenting to a very general audience. My co-presenter for the Matariki Network was Samantha, was presenting in global development studies and politics, and I presented in research in medicine, medical research. So we both had to have some common ground there uh, and be able to summarize our words in a common ground. So I think it, it just equipped me with a whole bunch of skills that I'm going to take moving forward uh, in my career. That's really good. And so I guess what I should ask, though, because you're in translational medicine, not everyone understands what that is. And I know I asked you this question during homecoming. So can you explain what is translational medicine for, for our audience, please? So translational medicine is a 
a relatively new term. It's actually the first time it's translational medicine has been in graduate studies is at Queen's. It's, we're the only program in the world to be able to combine both basic science research with clinical research, which is what essentially translational medicine is. So in health sciences research, specifically from the Canadian Institute of Health Research, they one of the pillars that they prioritize is what they call integrated knowledge translation. Right. Uh, and, and in that sense, what they're really aiming for trainees and PIs to do is to take their research and be able to, one, relate it to patients' problems and patients' questions. But the, the second part is to be able to kind of turn it into information that can be readily used by the, the general public or healthcare practitioners. So not just doing right. research for the sake of doing research, but doing research for the sake of it actually being applied in the future, which is what translational medicine really is. To summarize that in like almost a sentence, it's be taking your research question from the bedside, taking it to the bench, and then bringing it back to the bedside, to the patient. Okay. Oh, I like that. That's a good little thing to remember as you're, as you're moving along. And so, so what is your background anyway to get you into applying for a PhD in this? My background is completely unrelated to what I'm doing now. I love telling this story. So I actually came into Queens. I did my undergraduate degree at Queens in kinesiology. So at the right. School of Kinesiology and Health Studies. And there I thought I'd be come out and be a physiotherapist or be maybe pursue sports medicine or stuff like that. And I did a lot of my anatomy courses, physiology, exercise science. And my thesis was actually in exercise science. And then turning into translational medicine was a little bit of a, a different path I decided to take. I, I knew someone with uh, inflammatory bowel disease, which is the one of the main research topics I investigate. And I saw right. how it really impacted the quality of life of patients with IBD, uh, specifically pain. And I thought there had to be a better way. So I decided to take kind of a, a pause on whatever clinical career I wanted and really pursue research, and which is where I met... Uh, Dr. David Reed and, and Steve Vanner, uh, Dr. Stephen Vanner, and we came together and, and came up with this project to try to one, tackle pain in IBD patients, but two, also a bigger task is tackling the opioid crisis. Well, yes. And so that's a good little segue there, Quentin, into your research topic, because people are probably wondering why you're bringing in, you know, irritable bowel um, disorder or disease and cannabis or opioids so let's have a chat with it because well first of all though I, I find it interesting because even with kinesiology and health studies and the track that you looked it was very much towards health anyway it's just in, in a sporting in, environment but it's still it's still health related and even with that there's a lot of um, application of what you're doing in kinesiology and health studies because you can give it to the coaches you can give it to the athletes you name it and so it was nice, though, that you could see, you could transfer some of those, probably some of that knowledge that you had there, as you said, to translational medicine, but now in, in, in a different area. So your research, I'm going to let people in on, the, in on it, that your research topic today is uh, using cannabinoids to reduce opioid dosage to treat abdominal pain in inflammatory bowel disease. So do you want to give us a bit of an overview of that before we, we get into the nitty gritty and ask you those really tough questions? Yeah, uh, for sure. So I guess we could get started by really understanding what inflammatory bowel disease is. Good point. <laughs> so there's IBS and IBD. I, IBS would be irritable bowel syndrome and IBD being inflammatory bowel disease, two different diseases. 
often used interchangeably in the media, but not necessarily, they are not not interchangeable. Um, okay. I'm really focusing on inflammatory bowel disease, which is chronic inflammation of the gastrointestinal tract, could be due to a variety of things. Um, but there is very present inflammation. And, and what that inflammation causes is, is excruciating pain during an active flare of inflammation. So the statistic I always put out there is over 70% of patients experience daily pain, which is an outstanding oh. majority. And that's during an active flare. And even when there's no active flare, uh, over 30% of patients experience daily pain as well. So wow. it's, it's really not, pain is such a debilitating phenotype or, or characteristic and symptom of this disease. And, and that's one of the most cited needs for uh, IBD patients is pain relief. So, and, and the other statistic I've, I throw out is that Canada actually has the highest prevalence of inflammatory bowel disease in the entire world. It's estimated in the next 10 to 15 years, over 1% of the population will have it. So that's about wow. one in 140 people uh, in Canada will have inflammatory bowel disease. And, and you multiply that by 70% and that's how many people experience daily pain. So this is not a, a small problem. That's, that's crazy. And, and first of all, I think I even got the two terms mixed up. I think I said irritable bowel instead of inflammatory. So my apologies there. That's how easy it is to sort of flip them over. But but those statistics are really, really high. Yeah. So so what's causing this pain before we get into how to manage it? So what causes the disease is the million dollar question that everyone Mm -hmm. wants to answer. And there really is no simple, there's no simple answer because uh, research has shown it could be a part of it is genetics, a part of it is an environment, a diet could play a role, autoimmune uh, could play a right. role. But what is present in all all presentations of inflammatory bowel disease is this is this chronic inflammation of the gastrointestinal tract. So uh, IBD also encompass, encompasses two diseases: ulcerative colitis, which we okay. hear. Uh, and Crohn's disease, which it maybe is the more well-known one that we hear a lot in the in the in the media or are reading articles. So these are two diseases that kind of come underneath the bre- umbrella of IBD. But uh, again, they're characterized by this chronic inflammation of the gastrointestinal tract. And in our GI tract, we actually have nerves that directly innervate our bowels or our guts. In that sense, our, these nerves can sense pain, and this inflammation right. is really sensitizing these nerves. So uh, if you take a person with no IBD, their pain, they, they don't experience pain because their nerves aren't being sensitized by this inflammation. But if you have a person with IBD, rounds and rounds of inflammation over many, many years causes these nerves to have higher sensitivity, uh, and which is why patients experience or such a high proportion of patients experience this excruciating pain. So it's not just a, the matter of being bloated. It's much more than that. No, Yes, it's, it's much more than that. And uh, for everyone who's wondering what IBS is, then uh, on the uh, flip side of it, IBS there's no re- there's no inflammation in the tract. It's what we call a functional gastrointestinal disorder. So we really can't trace. It's real, uh, and and patients experience symptoms whether that's be constipation, diarrhea, abdominal pain, and they experience these symptoms. But there re- there's no inflammation. There's no right. There's no phenotype to it. Right. It's just symptoms. Uh, but it is a very real disease that plagues, again, uh, such a high proportion of Canadians. So equally as important as IBD, but not my area of uh, expertise. So I'm, I'm fascinated by these facts. So being the most, the biggest problem that we've got in Canada, is there a breakdown between different uh, genders or socioeconomic groups or anything? 
has has that been studied or so yeah actually the proportion of females to males is it is slightly higher in the canadian population at, at least it's it's about 1.3 to 1 the ratio of uh, females to males and but the ironic thing is that in, in research research is so, so biased towards males whether that be male patients in the 70s and 80s and, and beyond that to nowadays just male uh, studying in male mice in animal models but but it, my disease of interest is really a female-dominated disorder, which is why my research really uh, incorporates, incorporates both biological sexes. Uh, oh, well, that's good. Yeah. That's really good. And then you, you mentioned in the beginning, uh, there's, I mean, as we all know, and it's a bit more prevalent now too with during this past pandemic, or we're still in it, um, the opioid crisis, which is in the past has been what's used to help um, ease the discomfort of this disease and in patients. But you're not looking at that. You're looking at cannabis, which, of course, is now legal in Canada. What made you want to look at cannabis as a possible treatment? Uh, for those two reasons exactly that you listed, one, that it's legal, and two, that it's uh, opioids have caused countless number of morbidity and mortality uh, especially among North Americans, it, it, the opioid crisis has ravaged North America um, more than the rest of the world. Uh, so kind of like you mentioned, traditionally, this abdominal pain is being managed by opioids in, in GI patients. But it, it's a little bit ironic why that is, because opioids, one, slow down gastrointestinal motility. Oh, uh, so <laughs> it, it, if, if you if you picture the colon like a little tube or a balloon, if you slow down motility, you get more buildup, and that buildup yeah. expands the colon, and that Which increases more pain. issues. So right. that's one of the main reasons. Like it, it's very ironic, uh, even to this day, why clinicians use opioids. Uh, but it, the 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 point being, it's it's very effective at treating pain, but there's so many side effects. So um, tolerance, addiction, death, uh, this slowing of the GI tract and, and motility are all problems. Which is why there there is a cry. Uh, for help in the patient population and for a new way. Uh, so in comes cannabis and in comes the Canadian government uh, legalizing recreational cannabis. And it's predicted that it's going to increase the number of patients who use uh, cannabis or cannabinoids uh, as a more general term to treat their pain. And even before legalization, there's, there's a study in, from Manitoba that says over 20% of their patients already used cannabis before legalization. Uh, but right. with, there was no evidence for or against it, uh, which is where I'm trying to come in, is really kind of gathering that evidence for or against the use of uh, cannabinoids and trying to help patients and their healthcare providers come up with a informed and safe treatment plan. So what part of the cannabis plant are we looking at here? Because we're not smoking it, or are we smoking it? So right now, the main uses in the world uh, for cannabis, it's either either smoking it or, or ingesting it orally. What I'm looking at is not specifically cannabis itself, but the active ingredients that target right. these targets certain cellular receptors um, to try to activate those cellular receptors and trigger this pain relieving uh, sequence. So what I'm looking at is really um, chemical. They're synthetically derived in laboratories. Uh, and those synthetically derived cannabinoids target 
receptors specifically uh, right. to reduce pain. Or I'm trying to find out if they target. If they do. Yeah, if they do it or not. <laughs> they claim, uh, the, the labs obviously uh, have done their due diligence in saying that this is specific for this receptor, but we don't know if it's applicable, especially in the gut. Right. Well, I mean, that's the problem with when you're looking at health studies and you're going into that micro level, there's a lot of receptors there and they're not all necessarily the same sort of receptors. So are you hitting the right one to, um, to be able to, to stop this, in this case, pain for, mm-hmm. the, for the patient? So it makes it very, very tricky for them. I've got, I've got some questions for you and hope I'm pretty sure you can answer these for me and for, and for everyone. So what do you think is the impact of your research on how patients and healthcare professionals use cannabinoids to treat their diseases? Because, I mean, your whole work is about translational medicine. Mm-hmm. So I'd be interested on, on that from, from your perspective. So the goal of my research is to, is to gather this evidence, again, for or against cannabinoids. Uh, or for for or against cannabinoids combined with opioids to see if they can reduce pain together. Uh, right now, there's numerous Canadians that turn to that turn to the using cannabis or, or cannabinoids, and there really is right now no mechanistic evidence to support their use or go against right. their use. So there, uh, people do report some symptom relief. But again, we don't know how this is working. If it's a one-off thing for this person, or if it can be a generalized effect. So what my goal is to, to gather robust evidence uh, in animal models and humans to say to the world or, or to the Canadian public, hey, this works or this, 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 this works and we should be pursuing perhaps phase one clinical trials. Perhaps clinicians right. can look at this evidence and actually have some confidence in prescribing uh, medicinal cannabis. Because right now, one of the most cited concerns of physicians and, and clinicians is that we, we don't know if this is working or not. There's not enough evidence. I'm not going to mm-hmm. prescribe it to our, my patient population without knowing what? exactly what, what it's doing. Well, you bring up a good point there in terms of, as I've heard in other research topics, is that you know, you're saying you're trying to target those receptors, but the, the actions of the cannabinoids may be helping patients, but is it actually helping at the, the, the pain point receptor? Or is it somewhere, it could be somewhere else in the body, it could be a, a mental thing that mm-hmm. they just feel a lot more relaxed, but it hasn't actually hit those receptors to, re, to reduce it down there. So I guess with some of your work is trying to find out, is it hitting in the right place? to reduce that and is it an act, is it an actual reduction in pain or is it just a thought that you've got less pain yeah exactly so the the problem with cannabis is that there's a psychoactive ingredient thc in the cannabis that you can get at the stores it's known to be central acting but we want to know if it's peripherally acting because if it is then we can start designing specific and restrictive drugs only acting at the colon uh, or right. only acting at the in our GI tract and not acting elsewhere, so we don't have those side effects that may be associated uh, with its use, which is what we're trying to avoid. Which is good because I you see all those adverts about particular drugs and things, and it's like four, three quarters of the advert is, um, but you could have these side effects. Yeah, it, that's the <laughs> yeah. golden that's the golden question in any drug related <laughs> research is how do we get a drug to not have side effects? Yeah. And the, and the answer is restrict the drug at the point where you're trying at to target. Point. But 
we haven't found the, the perfect way to do it yet. And hopefully we're onto something here. You're onto something, which is great. So we kind of talked a little bit about this. Now, cannabis has been legalized for a few years here in Canada, and there may still be stigma associated with its use. So do you think your research will have an impact on reducing that stigma? This is kind of going back towards my kinesiology days where we learn a lot about uh, social uh, social health and population health and global health is that there's a stigma attached to a lot of drug use, especially cannabis. And the way to target that stigma is through education. And the, and right. the other way is to provide evidence uh, to the population that, hey, like this works uh, for X, Y, and Z reasons. And th- this is why these individuals are choosing to use this drug or this compound. And, and that's the right. way we're going to try to break down the stigma. So it's really tying in the translational medicine whole part of my research, not only benefiting the patients, but really educating society on on whether it works or not. Yeah, and I think too, it's it's separating recreational cannabis to medical cannabis, if 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 that's an easy terminology to use. So if you're on medical cannabis. It's okay. It's it's been on. It's you've been given it for very specific reasons, kind of thing. And I think that could help reduce the stigma again with through education, because most people think of cannabis are thinking, you know, getting high and stuff like that, but they forget about there's another side of all of this. Yeah, exactly. So the way to make people less scared or less feel less strongly uh, neg- negative affect towards it is really just educating uh, and mm-hmm. and making it more well known, the benefits and, and why we're using or, or uh, these patients are using. Uh, and hopefully that my research can have a, a positive impact on that. I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will. Now, we all know the opioid ep- epidemic has had a huge impact across the world. And, and particularly, as you said, in, in North America. Why do you think this is? And how will your research change this? Because you are battling to be honest, against the big pharmaceutical companies. Yeah, uh, the opioid epidemic, it's, it's been well researched and it's, it's been well documented in the literature why it happened. It's, it's good to acknowledge what happened in the past so we don't repeat our mistakes into the future. But what I'm trying to do is trying to find a way where we can start reducing the dosages of opioids for patients and in that sense, hopefully mitigating the side effects of the opioids or discontinuing the opioid use. Uh, and what I found in my research is that we, if we use low doses of cannabinoids plus a low dose of opioids, we can actually achieve pain relief. Um, right. And that's absent of side effects. Right. And is that also then reducing the risk of being addicted to that particular prescription, whatever it may be? Yeah. So addiction is... A, is a little bit outside the scope of my research. Addiction right. has a huge psychological component to it. Um, for our research, we're more interested in the tolerance question. So with opioids, the longer you use it, the more dosages you, you, you use, you do end up developing what we call tolerance. So if you think right. about it, the same dose yeah, after a long period the same of time. effect. Exactly. But what we found in a shorter tolerance study in our lab is that when we use this combination of low dose cannabinoids plus low dose opioids, we don't get any tolerance. Uh, so we're, well, that's good. Yeah. So it, it's really promising. Like the synergistic effect that we're seeing between cannabinoids and opioids in our lab, at least, is really promising 
way of reducing the dosages of opioids uh, and it's showing to be a really promising strategy to treat pain. So down the track, are you hoping that people wouldn't need to use opioids at all and they could just use the cannabinoids? Uh, not necessarily. My goal isn't to say discontinue one and, and use the other uh, wholeheartedly or, or full, full-fledged. My goal is to try to find the best and safest way. It's kind of like that sweet spot, isn't it? Exactly. The sweet spot of, of both. Exactly. So if it's a combination of the two, then it, it's a combination of the two that our research will show. If it's just cannabinoids, then our research will support that. But really, there's no there's no saying that I'm, I want or I'm hoping that people will turn away from opioids completely. Uh, and there's no, and I'm not saying that they should turn to cannabinoids completely. I'm, I'm just saying that, or oh, my goal is to find the most safe and effective way. Right, to oh, which is which is the most important part. But are there other ways that you're trying to with this combat inequality? Because I mean, gender is one area that you can look at, but it's also, and maybe this is just another study because it's not quite what you're doing because it's more on a social side of, um, you know, people's socioeconomic status you know if, if this works would they have access to this sort of treatment unfortunately that's a little bit outside the scope of what i'm looking at uh, the hope is that if we're able to find in a safe and effective treatment and, and have it recognized as a safe and effective treatment then it will be supported uh, by our our health systems so that everyone can have this safe and effective treatment strategy right uh, but in, in research what we can do to battle inequality is really at biological sex aspect and, right. and really combating those decades of male predominant research and really incorporating female animal models, female patients, the, everything. Because uh, again, li- like we talked about it, it is a female predominant disease and, and it should be researched that way. Right. So what are your next steps then with this? Because you, you're just starting on this to see um, the effects right now, but clearly there's a long way to go. So what are your next steps? So next steps would be really to apply this to a, an inflammatory bowel disease, disease animal model. So we're just about to getting ready to publish all of our findings in a healthy mouse model. And we found, and we talked a right. little bit about those findings today that the synergy, if we use low-dose cannabinoids, opioids, they work. And in my 3MT, I talked about a little bit about how if we use a, a type 1 receptor-specific agonist, it can reduce pain. So that's all getting, that's all wrapped up and we're hoping to get it published now. And Fantastic. The next step, yeah. The next step is really moving into an inflammatory disease model. Uh, so if, if it works in a healthy mouse, uh, if all these mechanisms work in a healthy mouse, does it all remain the same in, in, in a sick mouse? Because right. sometimes things change, uh, as we do in humans. Uh, if something we're we're ill, then things inside our body change. The same goes for mice. Uh, so that's right. going to be the next step. Yeah, because there's usually chemical imbalances somewhere and all sorts of things that uh, can have an, an effect on that particular area. Yeah, exactly. Animals are very complicated beings. And, <laughs> uh, so how long is it? Ta- how's long? How long is it taking you to do this first part? And then how long do you think it's going to take to do the second part? So I started uh, at Gidru, uh, our lab, in 2019, right after I graduated. And we sent in our study to be published earlier this summer. So just about two years now. Right. Yeah, and then so, you've got to 
And then you've got to write it all up. Yeah. So, so <laughs> if all goes well, two more years. <laughs> if we follow the exact same pattern. But uh, as, we, as many of us know, research never really goes the way you want it. And, no, it's never linear. There's yeah. always other bumps in the road that you have to handle the adversity of, of what gets thrown at you. Exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. But, but I'm sure you can do that, which is it's great. It's, it's been fascinating actually listening to you, first of all, from your three-minute thesis, and now you've elaborated a little bit more. So I, I do thank you for doing that. Well, you were a gale, a rowing gale. Love that. Are, are you still a rower, even if you're not with the gales right now? No. So after undergrad, I decided to step away from rowing. And you didn't uh, want those early mornings no, in the fog. No, no. <laughs> uh, it was uh, the the years I spent here were great, but uh, time to transition. So I transitioned into CrossFit. So okay, yeah. There's a local CrossFit gym, and then after, and then recently, I transitioned to, into competing in Olympic weightlifting. Oh, is that right? Uh, yeah. So hopefully aiming to qualify for nationals in Fantastic. the coming months. So yeah, again, sport has really, even I, I, if I went to science and stopped studying sports, sport really never left my life. No, that's, I don't think it ever can. So, yeah. so that's great. So if I ever need anything lifted, I know where to come. <laughs> so yeah. You can practice. I've always got lots of things that I've got to lift. And then you're also a, I've, I've noticed here, a crisis responder of the kids help help phone um, what, yeah. what made you want to go into that uh, that was a little bit of half interest half passion in my undergrad I did a lot of studying and a lot of our course topics dealt with uh, mental health mental illness uh, and especially in youth uh, across Canada right. and the opportunity came up so that I could uh, volunteer some time uh, with the crisis text line uh, powered by kids help phone uh, and it, it actually started right I actually started with them right when the pandemic started so I was able to learn a walk along with uh, the youth in our country uh, throughout their struggles in the pandemic and really give me perspective on uh, oh, that's great. what they're going through and and how we can best help uh, as as a good support system well i take i take my hat off my hat off to you because that's not an easy thing to listen to upset um children let's face it their children are on the other end of the phone so i take my hat off to you to be able to to do that and stay strong yourself because it it must weigh you down sometimes yeah it, it's i i think it the, the kudos should really go to the people texting in because it, it takes a lot of strength bravery and courage to, to, to take that first step Right, uh, and so I'm I'm just there along for the ride and and trying to help them problem solve uh, or work through their crisis themselves and, and being a good support system. But again, it really goes back to the strength they display. Right. Well, that's great. Well, thank you for doing that. Okay, so I guess that's it, isn't it? When I mean, we've gone through all your work and and what your next steps are and a little bit of your own background. So I really do appreciate you coming on the show, Quentin. I hope you've enjoyed your experience and I haven't been too hard on you. No, it's been a really good time. It's funny. It feels like I've known you for so long now. (laughs) Well, that's a bit scary for you. (laughs) No, it's great. It's you've, you've been an invaluable resource to my grad studies. So excellent. Well, I, I, I wish you the best of luck for the rest of yours. You, you've clearly got a great topic there and i wish you every success in it along the way and and don't be a stranger i'm sure we'll have other times to meet yeah 
for sure. Thanks for having me on today. You're very welcome. So that's it, everyone. Another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. So don't forget you can download the show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. Just type in a Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.